Well, if you brought a Bible with you to church this morning, I invite you uh, to point your Bible to the book of First Peter. It is my honor and privilege to be with you this morning and walk you through the, these next few verses in this wonderful epistle. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you to church this morning, you're welcome to use one provided for you in the pew ahead of you. It's hardback and black. We'll be on page 1016 of the pew Bible. Be reading in chapter 4 in the next few verses as we work verse by verse through the epistle of 1 Peter, which is how we do it here. Um, we're going to be reading uh, verses 1 to 7, though we're probably only going to be focusing on a few of these verses. This is the second, uh, this is the second part of a two-part uh, bit inside of the, this paragraph. Uh, We called the first one a call to arms. This one is no different. This is part two of a call to arms from 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 1 down to verse 6. Would you read with me? Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they may live in the spirit the way God does. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I need your help this morning, both to understand the word and to speak it rightly. Would you equip your servant to speak truthfully, boldly, and in accordance with your word? Would you use your word as it goes forth this morning to equip the saints for the work of the ministry? Would you cause us to see the urgency of these days, of the work that you are doing in our lives, through our lives, for the sake of your name? Would you cause the gospel to be front and center in all that we say, all that we do, all that we think? For our talents, for our gifts, for our resources, would we spend it on you for the sake of your gospel and the glory of your name, in whose name we pray, amen. An urgent call to arms. So as we've come to 1 Peter chapter 4, there's this phrase which I sort of ignored last week, but I want to spend a minute or two on. In the first verse of First Peter chapter 4, Peter says, Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's a strange phrase because it's not entirely clear on the outset what Peter means that you have suffered in the flesh and therefore ceased from sin. Is, is Peter claiming sinlessness? I don't think Peter's claiming sinlessness. I don't think he would even claim that for himself. We know from the book of Galatians that 
Even after the, the Lord was resurrected and ascended into heaven, the apostle Peter himself struggled against sin. So I'm not entirely sure and certain that this is what he means. We know, in fact, that the guy who wrote 13 of the 26 books of the New Testament entitled himself the chief of sinners. And so it doesn't seem to me that sinlessness is exactly what is meant there, especially considering what Peter writes after this by saying, you've ceased from sin, so stop sinning. So it seems like what Peter is saying is, you've stopped sinning, so stop sinning. And that's exactly what he's saying. And if that's confusing, the Bible has a handful of statements that are just like this. Colossians 3, verse 3 and 5, this is what Paul says. He says, for you have died, and your flesh is hidden with Christ in God. When Jesus died, you died with Jesus in God on the cross. And then two verses later, put to death, therefore, what is in you. Your flesh is dead. Now put it to death. Romans 6 is another example. Verse 6, it's a little dense, so hang with it. We know that our old self was crucified with him. That's Jesus. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 11 says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Followed up by the very next verse where Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Essentially he's saying, you're not enslaved to sin, your sin is dead. So don't let your dead sin reign. So what does that mean? Your sin is dead, put it to death. Here's what the Bible is saying. When Jesus died, your sin died with Jesus. If you are in Christ, your flesh, that, those impulses which would lead you to uh, disobey and defy God, it's dead. It has no power in your life. You are no longer its slave. And so therefore, you don't have to obey its will and passions over your life any longer. So, don't. So why don't we? Don't. Why do, if the body of sin is dead, if it truly is powerless, why does it feel so powerful? Why is it so strong? Why is the impulse to disobey God so strong in our lives if it is truly powerless? The answer is because we just keep picking up this dead corpse and wearing it like it is alive. It seems to be the picture the Apostle Paul means to convey in Romans 7 when he says this, for I delight in the law of God, my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and keeping me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, in my body. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. And then he answers his own question, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The reason many of us lack the strength to kill our sin is because we think the body of death is still alive. And this is why we have the desire to do what is right, but we don't have the ability to carry it out because we're acting like our old man is still alive. 
I told you last week, arming yourself with the same mind of Christ and, and while you suffer for the sake of your sin and other things, you are to take your sin out into the open and shoot it in its face. The, tr- the trouble is, though, I find, don't you? It's hard, to pull, it's hard to squeeze the trigger. And I suppose there's a number of reasons for this. Maybe we just love sin too much. Maybe it's just we don't want to see it die. Or maybe it's just that it's not that big of a deal to us. And so we have trouble squeezing the trigger. We have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And we have not armed ourselves with thinking like Jesus. And so we have to put on the mind of Christ. We have to look at sin in the way Jesus looked at sin. We have to think about sin in the way Jesus thought about sin. And so what I want to do with you in the next uh, 35 minutes or so is by God's grace to continue to show from 1 Peter chapter 4 the armament of Christ-like thinking that will result in success in your war against sin. So three more ways from this paragraph of killing sin. Three more ways of arming yourself with the same way of thinking as Jesus did towards sin in the war as you fight against it and find victory in Christ. Here's, here's how it's teed up. The first way, Jesus lived for the Father's will, for something bigger than his own selfish passions and desires that we find in verse 2. The second way we will look at this morning is uh, to entrust ourselves to God as judge in the way that Christ did. That's verses 4 through 6. And third in verse 7 is that we respond to the urgency of the day and be about the Father's business. This is what we see in this passage about how Jesus handled sin and how it applies to our life. So settle in. We're going to get to work in First Peter chapter 4. I'm glad to have you this morning. The first way, the first way we arm ourselves with the same way of thinking comes from verse 2 in which we are to live for something bigger. If you are a Christian, we live no longer for human passions, but we live for the will of God. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Jesus was clear in his ministry about his motivations. His mind was set on accomplishing God's will. He set aside his own desires, his own wants, his own pleasures in order to do the Father's will. This is John chapter 5, verse 30. I do not seek my own will, Jesus says, but the will of him who sent me. In John chapter 8, he says, I always do what pleases my Father. This is the way Jesus lived. He was to live for the Father's will, for the Father's purpose. And you might be like, well, yeah, but okay, he was Jesus. He was God. This was easy for him. He's, he's God. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says it wasn't easy for him to resist temptation. Jesus lived 30 plus years on this earth without sin. But that was not easy. The book of Hebrews chapter 5 says that he suffered through the, the obedience. It was not an easy thing. It, it was difficult. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. So it's not easy for him. It's not easy for us either. But Jesus was willing to suffer in the struggle and the war against sin to live for something bigger than his own desires and needs. 
So if we are to have any success in the war against sin, we must submit ourselves to God's will above our own will. We got to give our life to something bigger than ourselves. Look, you're going to give your life for something. Your life is going to be lived for something. Why not live it for something and give it to something which has eternal value and eternal consequences and eternal rewards? Why not live for God's mission and God's pleasures? Because in the end, Cornerstone, you are not your own. You don't belong to yourself. Jesus Christ bought you with his blood, body, and mind. It belongs to him, every bit of it. So those of us who are tempted with drunkenness or inebriation of any kind, your mind, it's not your own. It belongs to Jesus. He bought it with his blood. And those of us who are tempted for, with sexual sin, your body is not your own. Jesus bought it with his blood. It belongs to him. And those of us who are tempted with selfishness, our time and our money, it's not our own. Jesus bought it with his blood for his purpose and his glory. I mean, I guess you can have it all back if you want it. You can have your body back. Do with it whatever you want. You can have your mind back. Think however you want. But I should call your attention to Romans 2.8, which says that those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, who obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. You can have it all back if you want. You just know the consequence is Hell. seems to me a steep price to pay for just a little sin. So the first way we arm ourselves against sin is to give ourselves for something bigger than ourselves, to live for God's will in the cause of the gospel. The second way we, we, we find in verse 4 to 6 is we entrust ourselves to the judge. We entrust ourselves to God as judge. This is what verse 4 to 6 says. With respect to this, go to, go to that part. With respect to this, that's the not sinning. They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and so they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they may live in the spirit the way God does. If in your commitment to Christ, you have refused to join the world in, 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 in its way of living, and sensuality and passions and drunkenness and idolatry, all that stuff that was listed in verse 3. And so in resisting those things and not living like that, you stand out. And at first, the world sees that in you, and then they're surprised. They're, they're surprised. And so they, why are you like this? But then their surprise turns angry, and they malign you. Their surprise turns evil. The word malign means slander, so they begin to speak evil of you. Your silent non-participation with the world in its sin is viewed by the world as condemnation of that sin, and so then they malign you. 
following Christ in commitment to God honoring holiness will get you slandered. But that shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't. Jesus, Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. So, so it kind of goes with the deal. It's the gig you signed up for. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. It's funny when you think about it. Because we live in a day when individualism is celebrated as one of the highest of all virtues. Be, be true to yourself. So long as you being true to yourself agrees with me being true to myself, because if you being true to yourself doesn't agree with me being true to myself, then you're a bigot. And you shouldn't be true to yourself. You should be true to me. Or, it's not right for one person to impose their values on another person. Unless that person's in the womb, then they can impose them all they want. Or, no one should be told what to believe about sexuality and gender. Unless what they believe comes from the Bible, then they shouldn't believe that. Postmodernism has a silly, self-defeating philosophy. The point is, this is how it's going to be for us. What we have witnessed over the last 10 to 15 years is nothing short of a revolution in the way that the Western world views itself and sexuality and, and even gender. And it's probably just getting started, and Christians are likely to be even more maligned. But this is in fulfillment of a 2,000-year-old promise from the Apostle Peter, who said, you're going to be maligned when you stand out. Get used to it. So what do we do? Verse 5 says, we look to God, who is the judge. We arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. Back in chapter 2, Peter told us what Jesus thought about when he was being maligned. This is what Peter said. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But here's what he did. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's the same thing Peter says in verse 5 and 6. You're going to be maligned, and when you do, think like Jesus. Entrust yourself to God as judge. One day, every person who has ever lived will stand before God and give account for the life they lived. And we ought to entrust ourselves to a sovereign God. He's got this under control. This means we don't have to defend ourselves in the way we might think. Our hope is that all who slander us come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. We hope that when they see our good conduct, they will glorify God in heaven. That's what we pray for. So Christians, at great cost to themselves, go to the nations and proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Football players go to other football teams and share their faith at great risk to their reputation. Christians don't kill others to show how great our God is. We get killed by others to prove that He is. But we know some won't believe. We know we will be rejected. We know that we'll be slandered. We know worse will happen. But we should not be tempted to retaliate or even to defend. 
firing back in defense. Instead, we entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We shouldn't fear being maligned. Read the end of the book. (laughs) Jesus wins in the end. We shouldn't be afraid of being maligned a little here and a little there or a lot there. By the way, don't let verse 6 trip you up. It's um, by the gospel being preached to those who are dead refers to the many women who, in Christ who died, who, have, who stand before the judgment of God. They heard the gospel in their day, and it prepared them for their meeting with the Lord. They believed the gospel, and it meant eternal life for them. So Peter's just using that verse to encourage these elect exiles about those, their friends, their grandmas and grandpas and all those who have died in Christ. So he's just saying, don't worry about those who died in Christ. They're, they're good. So the second way of arming ourselves with the same way of thinking like Jesus in the war against sin is to entrust ourselves to God as judge. Now, verse 7. The third way we arm ourselves with Christ's way of thinking in the war against sin is to feel the urgency of the day and to get busy in the Father's business. I take this from verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of of your prayers. Now, in a lot of commentaries, this, they say this marks a shift in Peter's mind, and he's moving on to another subject, but I'm not entirely sure that that's the case as I meditated on it this week and looked at it and read it over and over again. It seems to me that he's still in the same flow of thought. There's a couple of reasons for this. First, it seems the prescription for, this is the New Testament prescription for persecution, Anytime in the, not anytime, but almost every time in the New Testament, when a New Testament author addresses persecuted people, uh, he always reminds them of uh, the second coming. He always reminds them that Jesus is coming back as a as sort of a way of saying, look, I know it's tough. I know life is hard, but Jesus is coming back. He's going to make it all right. That seems to be the, the sort of hang in there, Jesus is coming soon prescription for persecuted people. But the other reason I think Peter's still in the same flow of thought is that Peter brings up this idea of urgency. The end of all things is at hand. It's here. We're in the age to come. This is the end of the age. It's an urgent call to arms to all who will listen It seems Peter means this statement to cause us to to sit up straight and to take seriously the call of God on our life and to pay attention. This urgency, this urgent expectation of things to come is often how the Lord Jesus talked. He would say things like the master of the house is coming at a time when we least expect him. And those who are called uh, to be Christians must be busy about the master's business. And I wonder how often we live our lives with a sense of urgency toward things to come. Our king is coming soon. And what will he find us doing when he does? Will we be doing his will and building his kingdom? Or will we be doing our thing and building ours? I hesitate even reading this next passage. It's it's intense, but I trust the Lord would use it for some good. It's his words after all. This is the Lord's own warning to us in Luke chapter 12. It's a bit long, but I want you to hear this, church, to lean into these words of the Lord Jesus. Who then is the faithful and wise manager 
whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and he begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what was deserving of the beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. That passage ought to make us tremble. It is not time to be quiet and to be about our own affairs. The master of the house is coming soon. We have to be about our father's business, about advancing his gospel and growing his kingdom, not ours. And I'm afraid too many of us are in danger of wasting our lives. This is why we give away John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life in the Foyer. So many Christians are in danger of crossing the finish line of this life and facing the dreadful reality that they have wasted this life. So Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, he gives us two things to do. One, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Arm yourself with self-control. The time is urgent. The days are over for spending it on self-centered wastefulness. We have to be about the Father's business. And to be about the Father's business requires self-control. Which, by the way, when you look at this passage in entirety, is exactly the opposite of everything he said in verse 3. All the vices of verse 3 come from a lack of self-control sensuality, drunkenness, and the like. The Apostle Paul says as much in verse Thessalonians 4, 4 through 5, each one of you should know how to control his or her own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. We know God. We know His mission. We know His judgment is coming. Therefore, we control our own bodies. We discipline our lives in a way that honors God and serves to advance the gospel through the local church. Discipline requires direction, and direction requires vision. And God has been pleased to give us vision, to see Jesus praised and for His grace in all the world through the gospel. And failure on our part to recognize our part in God's global mission will make self-control impossible. Here's what I mean. If we believe church is a place that we come between sporting events and work weeks, we will fa- fail to see the importance of personal holiness. If we think God is a means to an end and not an end in himself, we will fail to see the importance of self-control. 
And too many of us see the Christian faith as a means to get through life between vacations. And we fail to see ourselves on mission for God's global glory in the advance of the gospel. And it shows in the way we spend our time, and it shows in the way we spend our money. We don't feel like we're on mission. Consider the way an elite athlete trains. From what they do with the food they eat, from, from what they do with their time, from what, from what they do, where, how they sleep, everything is built around preparing themselves for the Olympic trials or for the next race or for the upcoming season. And that's for sport. And I just wonder how many Christians look at their life with the same sense of urgency What's at stake here? If not infinitely more. Is that extreme? Is it extreme to look at every significant financial decision you make in light of the impact that it has on your ability to serve God's mission through the local church? Is it extreme to, to view career moves in light of the impact that it has on your ability to serve God's mission through his local church? Is that extreme? Or is that what it looks like to live for something bigger than yourself, bigger than nicer vacations? And those are hard questions. But we're answering those questions right now. Conservative estimates of George Whitfield, the, the 18th century preacher, say that he preached a thousand times a year for 30 years straight. You do the math. He did more time sharing the gospel than he did sleeping. It's almost unbelievable. And I recognize that not everyone is George Whitfield, but everyone was saved by the same blood, and everyone is serving the same God, and everyone is advancing the same gospel. Maybe I am being extreme, but there's got to be a reason why Paul says, make the best use of your time, because the days are evil. The end of all things is near, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. To be sober-minded means to be mentally alert. That, that phrase, sober-minded, it's kind of a big deal to Peter. He mentions it three times. There's only five chapters in this book. He mentions it three times in this letter. Be sober-minded. I th- think clearly about the things of the day, the way God is working in and among us. I take this to mean, among other things, to be careful to let the Scripture influence your worldview. There are plenty of things vying for, your, for influence on the way you view issues and the problems of life and the problems of our day. Plenty of news networks and media outlets which want to influence the way we think about the issues of our day. But Christians ought to be influenced by a biblical worldview. 
which is that all of the problems of our lives, all of the problems in our world are gospel problems. That if God's people will have an impact in the social issues of our day, we must bring the gospel to bear on these issues. So social injustice and poverty and racism and abortion, and is- these are issues of sin in the heart which will not be changed by some political change. It will be changed by a gospel being brought to bear on football players. It will be brought to bear by, by women who, who, who see no other option other than bringing a, a child to real life because that child is precious because she, her heart has been changed by the gospel. These are gospel issues in our day. Only a... Only a sight of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is what is required to fix these issues in our day. And so it is on us to be in the scriptures, to keep our nose buried in the Bible, to let the Bible influence the way we look at world issues, and to bring the gospel to bear in our office, and into our family, and into our social networks, and into our churches. So we have to think rightly. And then finally, Peter says, we have to pray rightly. He says, arm yourself, watch, and pray. I want you to notice Peter's connection with self-control and sober-minded thinking with prayer. I think he got this from Jesus. This is what the Lord said in Luke 21. We read it at the opening. But watch yourselves, lest your heart be weighed down with dissipation, that's wastefulness, and drunkenness, and the cares of this life. And that day, the end of days, come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. And here's what Jesus says to do. But stay awake. Oh, but God, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Stay awake at all times. Praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Stay awake. As long as I have the privilege of serving you as your pastor, I will plead with you to do what your master has said. Watch yourself, lest you be weighed down with wastefulness and drunkenness and the cares of this life. We're so prone to forget the Lord. We're so prone to forget his mission. We're so prone to live for ourselves and to fall asleep and to spend our resources and to spend our time on nothing. Nothing with eternal value. My job as your pastor is to work for your joy in equipping you to serve the Lord's mission in the advance of the gospel in your life 
and the advance of the gospel through your life. So that when the master comes for the church he died for, he will find you doing what he's called you to do. He will find you being about your father's business. So what I'm asking you this week, the big takeaway, is evaluate your heart this week. Read Luke 21. What are you spending your time in doing, in building? God has given us a role as builders. You're building something. Take a look. What are you building? Is what you're building serving the gospel in the kingdom of God, or is what you're building hope for a good retirement, a nice vacation, pretty family? None of those are wrong. But unless they serve the advance of the gospel, they are danger to your soul. You were meant to live for something much bigger than yourself. And your joy will only be realized when what God has given you, the resources He's provided you, are used for His glory. Let's pray. Master, at one point, I'm thankful for your words. But on another, I'm, I want nothing to do with them. They expose in me a tendency towards frivolities. They expose in me the sin of wastefulness, of uselessness. And it hurts to hear you say this. So I'm asking, Lord, this week as my people go forth into their lives that your spirit would cause the fear of God to rest on them. Both in terms of respect for what Jesus died for, but also in terms of respect for what it means for their life. Expose in us, Lord, by your mercy, our tendency toward frivolousness, banalities, uselessness. Cause us to see the glorious reality that you've saved us for so that we can serve the purpose of God as factory workers, as teachers, even as preachers, as salespeople, as retirees, as students, in whatever capacity you've given to us to serve you, may we serve you with all our heart for the glory of your name. Do this among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What we like to do at the end of service is to reread the passage and to reflect on it. So I'd like you to stand to your feet as I read the passage once more.
Let God sort of wash over your soul and expose in you areas where you're not lining up with God's word. And I want to give you an opportunity while Corey sings this last song for you to confess your sins and to put your faith in Jesus to forgive those sins. Look, you don't have to confess your sins to me. You didn't sin against me. But you did sin against your Savior. And so if you have not lived up to these words and God's word, then I ask that you would confess those sins and put your faith in Jesus. And the Bible says he'll forgive you of those sins and cleanse you of unrighteousness. So as I read this again, let this word wash over you and then take a few moments and confess your sins. The communion table is open. You're welcome to take, partake in communion if you want. Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh and it no longer suffices for living for human passions but for the will of God. For the time that is past, Father, suffices for us to do what the Gentiles want to do in living in sensuality and in passions and in drunkenness and in orgies and in drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, Lord, They're surprised when we don't join with them in the same flood of debauchery. And so they malign us. But we know, God, that they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why, God, we know the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though they judged in the flesh the way people are, they may live in the spirit the way God does. Keep this in our minds, Father, that the end of all things is at hand. And I pray that we would be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. In Jesus' name.